Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to Strange Planet. Thanks for sticking me in your ear. On this episode, we're going to explore the immense healing intelligence of nature, the wisdom of ancient indigenous prophecies and shamanic prop, uh, practices, and the crucial role of psychedelic and entheogenic plants in initiating transformation of consciousness. And if one is hoping to dive deep into such a topic, who better than someone who has been involved in spiritual work and psychedelics for 50 years? That would be Stephen Gray. Stephen has been both a student and a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism. He spent a dozen years actively involved with the Native American Church, uh, peyote prayer ceremonies, guest membership in the ayahuasca using Santo Dame Church, and experience with a number of other entheogens. Stephen is also the author of Returning to Sacred World, a spiritual toolkit for the emerging reality, and editor as well as one of 15 or 18 contributors to the popular Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. He teaches people about the spiritual benefits of intentional cannabis use and conduct cannabis meditation and sound journeying ceremonies. Perhaps most relevant to his mission for the past 10 years, Stephen has co-organized the influential Spirit Plant Medicine Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. His latest project, a collection of essays in book form titled How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. Stephen is the editor. Other contributors include Christopher Beish, Zoe Helene, Dennis McKenna, 
uh, Martina Hoffman, The Dark Duchess, Jamie Wheel, Grandmother Maria Alice, and others. Hello, Stephen. Welcome. Hi. May I make a couple of minor corrections? Please do. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the Dank Duchess would like to be called the Dark Duchess. Did I say dark? <laughs> I, my apologies. <laughs> no worries, mate. <laughs> Indeed, the Dank Duchess, yes. If she, hears, if she hears it, she'll get a chuckle, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank yeah, you yeah. for that. Yeah, no uh, worries, yeah. The Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, that just wrapped up last weekend in uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indeed, tell, me, yeah. tell me about what happened there. Oh, it's a fantastic conference, if I don't mind, if you don't mind my saying so myself, as they say. Um, we get many of the leaders, uh, influ- leading influencers in this field, and uh, not coincidentally, really, um, seven of the speakers this year are also in this book that you referenced. And... Um, also, seven of the past presenters uh, are also in the book. So out of 25 contributors, 14 of them are in the book. So there's a significant overlay or dovetailing there. Um, so the, the purpose of the conference is exactly the same as the book, basically. The mission of the conference is to uh, make our contribution toward uh, educating, inform- informing, and inspiring people uh, toward um, waking up is the simple way to put it. You know, um, the uh, psychedelic medicines, if you will, or sacramental medicines play a central role in that, but there's really an overarching mission or message, and that is the need for a, uh, you know, a reconfiguration in inner and outer levels. So when we're talking about uh, psychedelics, ayahuasca, Mm -hmm. peyote, uh, psilocybin, uh, LSD, uh, cannabis, um, you, you refer to these, or I guess they are referred to as unspecific amplifiers. What do you mean by that? Or what is meant by that? Right. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a dry term in a sense, you might say, because there are, all, there are a lot of other ways to talk about them. Uh, some people would say they're spirit medicines. Um, in fact, many people from indigenous cultures and people who've had a lot of experience would say without the connection, a connection, to the uh, overseer or mother of the plants or the spirit of the plants, then you're missing a significant portion of it. But from a sort of a strictly mechanistic point of view, you might say, um, uh, the unspecific or sometimes referred to as non-specific amplifier function uh, basically means, well, cannabis is the is the most direct example of that one, I would say, or the simplest, shall we say, um, because it, it, uh, it, it amplifies your senses, for starters, right? Your five senses and a, and a few more, probably. Um, uh, and it, um, when you first smoke, it's, it's a little different if you take it orally because it comes on so slowly. But if you smoke or vaporize it, the effects are essentially immediate. And um, what that, what's going on at the beginning is, um, as the uh, exocannabinoids, as they were, out, outer, meet the endocannabinoid receptor system, uh, there's an immediate um, increase in blood flow, uh, an opening or um, uh, expansion of what uh, one of the contributors to my Canis book, Joan Bellow, calls the skeletal muscles, allowing for a deeper breathing, sending fresh oxygen, freshly oxygenated blood throughout the system into the extremities, um, which which is a reasonable, I, I think, explanation for why uh, people tend to hear music more acutely or sharply, uh, taste can be enhanced, et cetera, et cetera, and many experiences can be enhanced. So the non-specific or unspecific part of that is that it, it, you might think of it as a powerful tool. And I would say powerful with cannabis, by the way, um, depending on dosage and depending on how you meet it. You know, if you just smoke, smoke, have a couple of tokes and go about your business or yak, 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 or keep your mind going busy, you, you may barely notice the potency of the plant. But if you can, as uh, Terrence McKenna might have said, sit down, shut up and pay attention, then all of a sudden you go, wow, this actually is a really powerful plant. And then it's how you direct it. That's where the non-specific part comes in. Um, so, uh, in a different way, or in different ways, because each of these other so-called major psychedelics are different in certain respects, they do similar things, uh, which is they open up the whole system. You know, there's a meeting of molecule and brain, if you will. Um, which, um, you know, have you ever seen uh, Richard the uh, these uh, colorful diagrams of the brain? 
uh, yes. I think they're like looking down at them. I think they're magnetic resonance imaging brains. Right. And they've shown like the brain and uh, they've lit up different uh, parts around the edge of the, you've seen those, right? Yeah. So for the, your uh, listeners or viewers who haven't, um, uh, the, the sort of quote unquote sober brain is pictured side beside the psilocybinized brain. And um, what happens with the, when, when the psilocybin is in the, in the system is that all these connections of discrete parts of the brain start to occur. So there's like links and lines going around to all these different parts of the brain. Um, so it's, that's, that's the amplification effect. So um, I think one way of looking at it, it's not really a scientific way, it's more of a narrative kind of a description of, of what's happening when you take these psychedelics, particularly in you know optimal circumstances, is that they are um, expanding or amplifying us into what's real, what's already there. It's just that it's been inaccessible. Um, you know, a simple way to describe uh, our um, sort of habitual way of being in the world, most of us, almost all of us, frankly, uh, is that, uh, well, let me use uh, an image for this. Uh, did you ever read Aldous Huxley, Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception? Yes. Yeah, he uses the uh, image, if I remember correctly, I don't think I've read it for 40 years, but whatever, um, <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a, a faucet, like a tap. Uh, and that the way he describes it is the um, when you take the the psychedelic, the top is being opened up. So there's a flood of the water, which would then be you know whatever you call that energy, wisdom, insight, etc. But under normal circumstances, there's just a drip, you know. So that's the normal consciousness for most people compared to what is you know, what the ultimate potential of uh, you know of our minds is that we can encompass far, far, far more. Uh, than most of us have ever been aware of. And, and so this is where the psychedelics potentially uh, open us up into those realms. Right. Uh, that some of them seem, may seem very foreign and very strange. You know, Terrence McKenna is a classic example of talking about, you know, going to places that, you know, like, holy mackerel, man, you know, <laughs> uh, um, self-replicating machine elves, bouncing jeweled basketballs and things like that, you know. But really what most people are talking about in my uh, you know, environs these days is their healing and awakening potential um, uh, without necessarily visiting, you know, foreign realms <laughs> or, you know, you know, whatever you call it, the Pleiades or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. You that's, you know, once you get past the 101, then you get into maybe the spiritual entities, but Yes. And in fact, one of the contributors to the this book, the How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Michael Stewart, Annie, Annie, um, his chapter is called Talking Something About Talking Plants. Um, and he says that, and I've heard this elsewhere too in different ways, that um the the bright lights and the colors and the beautiful patterns that you often see with say ayahuasca, uh, they in his way of seeing it, you know, don't take this as gospel, folks, but, you know, just one way of looking at it. They are almost as if the talking plants are going to say, are saying saying to people, um, oh, we're going to show you some bright lights and trick you into thinking that this is what it's really about. But you need to know how to really work with these plants to go beyond that. And beyond that is the voice of the talking plants or the spirit or whatever you want to call it. We have another friend who's an ayahuasca, I guess you'd have to say ayahuasca as a woman, as opposed to ayahuasca uh, a person who leads ayahuasca ceremonies. And she's super sensitive, deep, intelligent person. And she's talked to me about her, uh, her sort of journey of, you know, over time with, with ayahuasca. And she said the same thing, you know, that's kind of like, this is like the, uh, the lobby of the theater, as it were, you know, all these um, beautiful patterns and visions and so on. Um, and then, you know, when you have to get past that to connect with the spirits, uh, the teachers, as it were. And it's similar with peyote, peyote um, as you mentioned in your intro, Richard, I, I did quite a few ceremonies in the Native American church, and they actually keep their eyes open most of the time in these ceremonies. They're prayer ceremonies. They're about connecting with uh, your true spirit, you might say, connecting with your awakened heart, as the Buddhists would put it, uh, and not about having you know wonderful, beautiful visions, so to speak, or hallucinations, for the most part. 
Right. Those those yeah. peyote prayer ceremonies, uh, if I understand correctly, they go on for something like twelve hours. Oh it's yeah. Not for the heart. <laughs> that's that's heart heavy sledding. It is, yeah. And uh, I mean, I'll, I will go to my grave in wonder about the time and blessing, and I guess in gratitude for the time I spent with those people. I didn't count, but I probably did 30 to 35 of those ceremonies over a 12 year period. And I would have kept going, except that um, the man who I loved the most, who was the best at doing that, uh, died. And then another person who uh, also was really good at it died. Um, and there was only one person left uh, that I knew and um, uh, in that area in Washington State where I was going. And it was a big journey, you know, like six hours each way with a border to go through negotiate and and a, and a ferry that I had to take and stuff like that. So, you know, you're up all night and you're driving for six hours coming back to Canada and so on and so on. So in the meantime, I met some people from the local Santo Daime group, which you mentioned as the local uh, or as the um, Brazilian syncretic church that uses ayahuasca. So I, I stopped going. But while I was going, I was blown away from the very first ceremony I ever went to. Um, these people hold a fantastic container um, and and with great dignity. You know, most of those people, this was an open group compared to some. When you, once you get into the Midwest and the Dakotas and that sort of area, a lot of those people are much more protective, the native people there, with for very good reason. Um, these people just happen to be more open to um, non-native people coming in. Um, um, in fact, Ken Littlefish, the one who ran so many of those meetings who died, uh, said that uh, uh, he had a near-death experience, like a serious one, where he was way out there for what seemed like a long time, and he was sitting with the elders, and they said, well, Ken, you can go back, or you can stay with us, you know? Um, and they said, but he said, if you go back, uh, uh, you're going to be um, a healer for the rest of your life. You don't have any choice about the matter. And another thing is you're never going to be, you're never going to exclude anyone of sincere intention from coming in that teepee. Right. That's why I was allowed as a non-native person. Well, um, uh, excuse me, Stephen, who else yeah. uh, attends these uh, peyote prayer ceremonies? I mean, mm -hmm. native and non-native, but why are people going there? Well, that's a good point. Um, I'm, a, I'm actually really unusual, to be honest. I, I was a rarity in that situation. Most of the people that I met, first of all, they were on average about two-thirds Native Americans and one-third non-natives. But even the non-natives tended to be kind of come from similar situations. Most of them have had a lot of trouble. Um, uh, you know, I'm this kind of like... Uh, you know, white middle-class boy from Canada that uh, never had a, a, you know, a drug addiction and never spent any time in prison. Most of those people did often both of those things, right? So the reason that the, peyote, the, the Native American church is actually uh, granted legal status by the Congress of the United States, amazingly enough, in a country that fears, you know, uh, expanded consciousness and anything that, you know, seems like a, quote, drug. Yeah, they, you, they would expect it to be a schedule one. <laughs> You bet. But, um, and well, it, I don't know if it's in any schedule, but certainly this is only granted for um, Native Americans, uh, strictly speaking, right? In any case, um, the reason that they, you know, accepted that and passed that law was because um, they were, they were well, part of the reason was that uh, people were able to show in abundance that uh, it essentially saved people's lives. They come in there and and uh, as Ken Littlefish and others said, um, uh, that medicine shows you yourself. And if you're on a path to self-destruction, it will quickly show you that. And then, it, and then it's up to you. You know, you have a choice. Like, you know, you, it sort of says, it sort of shows you like that. If you don't change your ways, you know, you're not going to be around much longer, right? Um, and then you go, okay, I need to heal. I need to make this change. And so once they do that, the medicine keeps bringing you into your heart, into your truth. And and that's why, you know, it, it's been allowed. And so the, the people that go there for the most part, as I said, are people who are, are coming in deeply wounded. Um, uh, you know, they joke about it, you know, that guys, guys will say, yeah, back in my drinking and drugging and gunning and running days, you know, and that was pretty much the way it was for a lot of people. Um, uh, you know, in and out of prison or, you know, it's, it's been extremely difficult, as I'm sure you know, and many of your viewers would know, Richard, uh, ever since the uh, European settler type folks uh, appeared in their lands, it's been, you know, a shit show 
for the Native Americans uh, for generations now, even longer in the eastern part of the continent. But in, in the west, it's been close to 200 years of um, having their cultures and their language and even their hair taken away from them, right? So, uh, yeah, uh, intergenerational trauma is rampant, and those are the kind of people that mostly come in. But it's just a beautiful medicine anyway. It sounds like it's, um, I mean, it's it, the, the medicine, and you call these reality medicines, rather mm -hmm. than, as opposed to escapism. Um, Opposite of escapism. Right. But it's, it's not actually, it's not, it's not, uh, the, the active ingredients aren't changing your, necessarily changing your chemistry or causing you to be, you know, to lose an addiction or to suppress a craving. It's, it's just acting like a mirror saying, this is what you are. This is how you got mm -hmm. here. Yeah. The way, again, in a non-scientific kind of a way, the way I like to think of these medicines is uh, that they have sort of two related or interwoven functions. And one of them is to show you uh, yourself in that sense, in a, in a direct or not necessarily direct, but personal kind of a way. So they can show you where you're wounded. Uh, they can, some of them can literally show you, uh, you know, take you back to your past and show you even your womb, you know, if you've ever read anything by um, Stanislav Grof and the work he did with L LSD, uh, more, th more than any other kind of experience, uh, for those who don't know about him, uh, he was the head psychiatrist of the Prague Psychiatric Hospital. And for, I think it was about 13 years from 1953 to 66 or so, he oversaw something thousands of uh, of psychedelic therapy sessions with psychiatric patients and and recorded it everything meticulously and a pattern started to emerge which was that people went into uh, the womb and the whole birth process he ended up calling it uh, basic parent basic perinatal matrices four stages one two three four from being in the womb right through to the birth and they and people would literally re-experience those traumas you know the the sometimes uh, like I'll just pick one of them like in the first stage BPM one in the womb, your if things aren't going well it could be because your mother is um, say addicted to drugs or in extreme distress anxiety depression all that goes directly to the baby right and so people that take would take this LSD in a therapeutic environment and have these kinds of experiences where they relive it sometimes to the point of even having sense memories like some people going what's that smell you know that kind of thing um so they can do that that's the one function that i mentioned um not altogether different from the other one which is they can show you a larger larger unconditioned reality that you know we actually live in a universe of um, creative love you might say uh, to put it in a sort of a hippie way you know um uh you know in eternal creation is is light it's beauty it's brilliance and uh and it's real you know the native america or pardon me the native um uh south americans uh sometimes say these medicines take you to a place that's more real than the reality you think you know and essentially, that completely harmonizes with uh, great teachings like uh, Tibetan Buddhism, for example, which, which basically say the ego, what we call the ego, the is or the you know sm small s self that we identify with is a, is a fiction. It's a creation of stories, concepts, beliefs that we have sort of patched together to create this little. Um, sense of some sort of personality or identity and uh and but it's not real it's just it's it just is those stories and um when you as they sometimes say the buddhists sometimes say land on what is when you can surrender relax release out of those stories you land on what is which is unconditional reality it's not like an alternative reality it's who you actually are and people right. You know, the psychedelics, because they do it so dramatically, sometimes people, and I've had this kind of experience where you just go, oh, okay, I get it. You know, it's that aha moment. It, you, it's, you can't explain it that much beyond that, but uh, in the moment sometimes, but you know it's real. Right. You know, like I've had, I've had moments in that peyote teepee where time stopped and peace was infused in through the teepee and, and peace 
you know, it's funny, the hippies always talk about peace, love, peace, love, you know, and people thought that was a little bit cheesy at some point, maybe, but it's, it came from, in many cases, their acid or LSD experiences where they sometimes, you know, all movement of, of the linear mind would stop in that sense, and you just settle down into this what is, uh, and realize that that is the true nature of things. Even Jesus, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how they escaped the, the heavy hand of the Roman, Holy Roman Catholic uh, hierarchy, but uh, there's a saying from Jesus, which is that the peace that passes all understanding, that kind of sums it up right there, right? Um, so, so these medicines can show you that too. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the, the peyote prayer ceremony, I mean, how much of the, the, the sacrament of the, the peyote has to do with allowing, I mean, these people are involved in, in heavy prayer or intention for like 12 hours. Mm -hmm. um, is, is the role of the peyote there to allow them to also to focus that intention? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. About, you know, going on this amazing, you know, this incredible trip and perhaps experiencing some spiritual entity. It's about focusing and your ability to to pray, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What it potentially does is connects you to your heart and to this, you know, deeper, more powerful, um, you know, unconditional connection, you know, with your spirit in that sense, or with the spirit, you might say. Um, we, you know, if, if, if you're um, happy with our interview by the end of it, you might have to, we might have to do this again, because I know you originally wanted to do two hours. And I, I like um, communicating via anecdotes and stories a lot of time, a lot of these times, but it, it, they, they, they can take a while, you know, um, so they can use up a lot of the chunk of time that we've allotted ourselves today. Definitely do it again. Sure. So in the peyote uh, uh, ceremonies, um, they are prayer ceremonies for one thing. And you you said it quite correctly, Richard. They they're about having an intention. Well, okay. So the what they really are is they um, prayer ceremonies that mo most of the time some particular person has asked for. You know, asked for the whole group to pray for a particular purpose, right? And so, um, and it could be any. It could be something kind of you know simple or easy, like a birthday or a wedding anniversary or something like that. Or it could be something really serious, like a person with cancer or uh, trying to pray uh, for someone to get out of prison and that sort of thing, more serious things. And then your job as the pr practitioner or the uh, participant is to, up until a certain point of the evening, like th the night, I mean, three or four in the morning, you're supposed to focus your prayer on that on that person. Um, you know, so you're talking about this 12 hour thing. And yes, I, I did do quite a few of them. And uh, one thing that I saw there was how tough the, a lot of those people are. You know, Ken Littlefish that I mentioned a little while ago, for example, when I first met him, he was about in his mid 50s. Uh, he had um, uh, diabetes. His left leg was so far gone, both hip and knee, that he had a very, very pronounced difficult limp. It was difficult for him to walk. He was missing his left arm above the elbow from an industrial accident. Uh, you know, he was, his, his physical being was, was, you know, in difficult condition, but his mind was tough. And this is key, actually. So this is the, where I should, I wanted to say a little, you know, or share a little anecdote. Uh, oh boy, I could talk, I could talk about Ken for the whole hour. He was remarkable. In any case, he was this is kind of an archetypal scenario where um, the shaman is vision, envisioned by the elders and they call them in. You know, this I've come across this a fair amount, enough to know that it's you know, a, pat, a common pattern. And it's, it was that way with Ken. Um, he was brought into, the, into that circle when he was 19 years old. At the time, and this was back in the 1960s, uh, almost everybody else was old. They were all in their 60s and 70s, and the reason for that was because there was a lot of repression at the time. Even they were supposed, though they were supposed to have the right to it, um, it was being uh, they were being harassed all the time. So they were having them deep in the forest, and they weren't letting any young people in because they figured the young people, or they were concerned they might have loose lips, right? But they called in Ken for that. Uh, for because they knew they knew he was going to be a healer he was going to be a, a roadman they call them and um, so he said it took him years to figure out how these people almost all of whom as I mentioned earlier had you know physical 
difficulties of one kind or another. Well, actually, I mentioned the the troubles they'd had, but most of them were screwed up physically too from all the tough life they'd lived and so on. You know, and they're old. You know, um, uh, and so Ken said it took him years to figure out how the hell these people could sit up straight and hardly move all night. You know, as you said, for twelve hours sometimes. Well, not uncommonly for twelve hours or more even. And he said he finally figured out what it was. He said they kept their mind on the prayer. They didn't go into their heads. They didn't start thinking about time. You know, one old elder talking about the vision quest of the four-day thing they do, mm-hmm. and it's similar for the Sundance, which is also four days and four nights without water or food. If you start thinking about time, you're in trouble. You're going to suffer really, really badly. But if you can surrender into uh, um, the prayer, the reason you're there, then that carries you. And that's, there's a, ma- there's a kind of a magic in that, in my experience or my understanding more than, more than personal experience. Ken, for example, told me once, he told me a story one time, he, Sundance, as I said, is a four day and four night thing. He said he once was once up for a week. What they do is they have a, 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 a one of those peyote prayer meetings <clears throat> the night before the dancers go in to, as they say, pray them into the Sundance. So they're up all night that night. Then they go directly into the Sundance, into the arbor for four days and four nights. And then they have a, a another meeting to pray them back out of it. So there's six days there with no sleep. And then for some reason, that particular one that he was a sun dancer at, uh, they had another one after that. Maybe somebody was in dire condition and they really needed to have another one. Seven days, three of them staying uh, or taking the medicine all this time. Seven days with no sleep. And he looked at me and he said, Stephen, I wouldn't recommend this. It almost killed me. But what I discovered and learned from doing that was as long as you keep your mind on the prayer, you're going to be carried. Okay, so that's just generally saying that, you know, we can be a lot tougher than we may think we are. Ken, uh, Ken, uh, Ken said once, um, relatives, you didn't come here to get comfortable. You came here to get strong. And I believe I learned a little bit about that over that 12 year period. Stephen, we'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, talk more about psychedelics and how they can help save the world. Stay with us. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more, listen to the dead files wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world 
only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. We're back with Stephen Gray, and uh, the new book is How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. And um, central to uh, psychedelics is the, the dissolution of the ego, which I would imagine can be quite frightening if you're not anticipating that, if you're not doing it under the right circumstances and someone doesn't sit you down and say, this is going to happen. You know, you got to just work your way through it. Don't, don't, uh, don't be frightened by it. Uh, have you ever, have you experienced that, that complete sort of dissolution of the ego while you were, I don't know, peyote or ayahuasca or, or whatever? Um, in a sense, in, in, in brief periods, you know, um, there's more to learn. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm still, a, I would say, um, uh, an adolescent warrior in that sense at my ripe old age. Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's just my that's me and my journey. Uh, but I, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I've had these moments where, where I've just, you know, landed on that what is where you go, there's no question here, there's no arguing this, there's no debating it, this is reality, this is the awakened state, you know, and then you come back out of it and go back to the, you know, the daily work. And that's really important, by the way, uh, people who may or may not know, about this issue of integration. It doesn't matter on one level if you've had what the Japanese might call a Satori experience of sudden enlightenment, seen God, seen ultimate truth, whatever. Just having those experience experiences can change you, change the course of your life, but you still have to come back and apply whatever it is you've learned to the daily walk. and it's not a guarantee. It's not guaranteed that people will do that. You could do 200 ayahuasca ceremonies and not really, you know, in a, an essential sense, change your personal personality and your way of doing things on the planet. Uh, the problematic aspects of that, I, I mean, so, uh, you definitely have to come back. The real work is every moment of every day. My old Buddhist teacher once said, uh, there's no time off. This sounds kind of gruesome in a way, but it basically means that whenever you can come back to being present, you know, the great Persian mystic poet Rumi said a similar thing in one of his po poems. He said something like, uh, you know, no matter who you are, it's, I'm not remembering the whole thing like, you know, uh, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Um, this is not a caravan of despair. Come back come back, come back, even if you break your vow a thousand times. So the vow, as I interpret it, is the vow to be present, the vow to wake up. And then we, you know, we wander, so to speak. Uh, so you just keep coming back. And that's the daily work. Hopefully what the psychedelics do, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of, you know, two-part function, right? One is they show you these wounds so that you can bring them to consciousness and release them. And that has, can have a powerful, uh, effective change in people's lives. And then it can show you that what you thought was reality, the, you know, the boundaries of what you thought were reality are, are just puny compared to, you know, the ultimate or unconditional reality. And that can be inspiring. But in a sense, that's what it is. It's inspiring. It's inspiring you to go back and, again, do the work. And also, while I'm at it, I think I want to throw in that uh, the work, so to speak, uh, is just beginning once you've more or less done a lot of your own healing, because it's not about being on the hamster wheel of healing for your whole life. That's way too self-absorbed, so to speak, or even narcissistic in that sense, uh, making a big deal about me, uh, what this is really about. And that's what the book is about, really, is that uh, you get yourself healed enough uh, that you're connected to your heart. You know, you care about the world, as my old Buddhist teacher said, allowing oneself to be touched by the world. And that in itself moves you. You don't have to uh, 
in a sense, figure out exactly what to do at that point. If you let your awakened heart guide you, I think, then you just find yourself going in the right directions. The more you can, more one can quiet one's mind and just pay attention and allow oneself to, in a sense, feel the world, you know, the way a musician would feel his, his or her instrument in that sense, or feel the music of the group, uh, feel into the world, keeping our thoughts as calmed as we can, because we only need to use those thoughts when we need to use them. And the rest of the time, they're getting in the way. They're actually creating a fog. Hmm. So that's the real work. And again, you know, psychedelics have this twofold function of potentially showing you the obstacles that we've placed in our way. Uh, and also the fact that once we've released those obstacles, and as we release them, so to speak, or surrender out of them, we are then gradually or increasingly stepping into uh, unconditional reality in that sense. And at that point, we're fine. We can, you know, once you've relaxed, once you've learned to relax and pay attention, the path tends to unfold of itself. You're, you, you were mentioning their music, and it just reminded me of, because earlier we were talking about this ayahuasca or ayahuasca. These are the mm-hmm. people that conduct these ayahuasca uh, ceremonies and so forth, and the, yes. the, the training for that. Um, and uh, the, the downloading of songs from mm-hmm. from the spirit the plant spirits T- talk to me about that i mean that's pretty remarkable <laughs> i agree richard about? yeah i agree well uh the native american church they they the songs some of them are quite old and they've been passed down through families and so on those songs may have originally you know come from the muse if you will or the spirit um haven't heard them talk a lot about that but in the purest tradition you might say of the ayahuasca world the mestizo shamanism of the upper amazon in particular oh and also the santo daime uh, they have a lot of they call them hymns and they say that those are also uh, you know brought in from the spirits that they don't make them up like a you know, there's a fine line there, actually, because, a, you know, a really, really good songwriter, you know, is it really different? You know, what is what is the muse exactly in that sense, right? Uh, I have a wonderful book called Songwriters on Songwriting. It's a collection of interviews with many of the greatest songwriters of the second half of the 20th century. And they say things like, oh, one of them, David Crosby from the group Crosby, Stills and Nash, he said he used to put a little note beside his bed. I think it was him that said that. Oh no, he he had his, he had another one. He said, "I never force a song. I never try." He said, um, uh, "They only happen when the elves have taken over the workshop." Uh, and then it was um, a group uh, from L.A. called Los Lobos. It was popular back. You remember them? Yeah. Anyway, I've forgotten the guy's name, but he said he. I think his name might have been David. Uh, in any case, he said he would put a note beside his bed that. Uh, he would wake up to in the morning and it would say, uh, I won't be needing you today, David, signed God, right? <laughs> and then there was another one, Ricky Lee Jones in that book. She said, the songs are like deer, deers. Uh, they're very shy. They appear and you have to be completely non-judgmental. You have to be really, really sensitive to them. As soon as you start putting your ego or your agenda in a way that in, in the way they're poof, they're gone, right? So, uh, now, with the ayahuasca world, um, in particular, well, actually, like I said, both Santo Daime of my familiarity and also the South American folks, uh, the ayahuasqueros, in the tradition, what they say is the songs come from spirit. Uh, I would imagine oftentimes when you're in the embrace of the ayahuasca medicine. So maybe a little anecdote, if we have time, would be appropriate for that. Uh, I... I, I went down to Peru a couple of times and did some ceremonies in the Iquitos area in northern Peru in the jungle there. And I went to this one particular place three times because I really liked the people there. And the second of those three, they were all within the same week, like two, three days apart. The second one was probably the most powerful ayahuasca experience I've ever had. And uh, in the morning, we had a sharing session, and I was planning on coming back two days later for the third one. And I told the shaman, 
the ayahuasca arrow that I wasn't going to because I figured I had enough to work with for about six months, you know. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come back anyway? Because I'd told him a little bit about where I thought my obstacles were. And he said, I got a song for you, even if you don't drink any medicine. So come on back. I ended up getting a fantastic sleep that night and decided I would come back and the next day or like two days after that one uh, on the Friday of that week. And also that I felt like I was comfortable taking some medicine. So they come in, it's a liquid, you know, I little glass. You know. I took about a third of how much I'd taken on the big night two nights before. And you know, once it had normally kicked in, which is an hour, hour and a quarter, maybe it's reached its peak. I thought, well, this is really, really mild and it feels nice. It's like a really light, but clear cannabis high or something really light. Oh, good. I'm going to get to sleep about midnight tonight. Have a great sleep. Beautiful. I've, I've done enough work this week, right? Inner work. At that point, they called each individual up one at a time to go and sit in front of them. And they light this uh, type of tobacco called mapacho. And they use that as a healing thing. And they blow some on you. They like light it, smoke and go, you know. And then they sing you the songs, a song. And they're called Icaros in Spanish. And um, so uh, he sings me the song. And I have to go walk back across this maloca to get to my cushion. I get back there and... Literally within one or two minutes, I went from almost not even noticing it, you know, like a 0.1 out of 10 or something, to like an 8 out of 10, almost as strong as the one from two nights before. So in the morning when we had the sharing session, I said, I told him that, and I said, hey, what gives, right? Like, was that something to do with your song? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, these songs are spirits, and they come to me, and they, you know, more or less say, I'm the song for this moment, for this situation, for this person right now. So they're, yeah, the songs in a sense are healers themselves. And 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 I think a really important point about that for the culture, because of, as you know, ayahuasca is spreading around the world these days, is that apart from all the other things that can be problematic with people who are leading ayahuasca ceremonies in terms of ethical issues, um, power issues, uh, money issues, etc. If you haven't made that kind of connection with the medicine as a spirit, as a real actual being of some kind, um, if you haven't made that connection and if you haven't learned some songs from spirit that way, you're missing a whole significant segment of the power that you can have access to for that work. Traditionally, they they take years of apprenticeship before they would ever come back, you know, and it, and it would more often than not in the tradition, it would probably be the, the master, you know, the guide, one who's your teacher, who tells you when you're ready. You don't just go down to South America for three months and do 25 ayahuasca ceremonies and decide, oh, I, I got it. I'm ready to lead ceremonies. That's 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 potentially problematic. Stephen, we'll take one final time out, come back and uh, discuss psychedelics and how they can help save the world. Stay with us. Welcome back, Welcome back. to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Stephen Gray, his latest project, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out and... Uh, contributions. One of the contributors, you mentioned him earlier, I think, Christopher Bache. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he um, he replicated or I guess uh, reproduced this this protocol that you mentioned earlier, uh, Stanislav um, Groff. Groff from uh, Prague. Uh, yeah. this, is, this is utilizing LSD. Now, Groff did this on, I don't know what he had, 75, 100 patients, but did, did Bache do this just on himself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'll try to squeeze in Chris's story because it's very relevant. And I deliberately put his chapter first after the introduction in the book uh, for that reason, because he he paints the big picture, the really big picture of what the mission of the book and arguably the mission. Well, I would say beyond arguably, inarguably the mission for, you know, for for the planet, really, at this point. So. He was a, he's now a retired professor of religious studies and philosophy from Youngstown, Ohio State University. And early in his career, he got interested in the work of Stan Groff. 
and decided to follow that protocol himself. So over a 20-year period, he did 73 high-dose LSD sessions, five to 600 micrograms each time at home in a very safe place with a sitter, his wife, who was a therapist, so she knew the territory more or less. Uh, and the sitter's job is just to keep you safe, really, not to interfere in any way at all, unless you sort of panic and decide you better call 911. So I think, no, lie down and breathe, dear. You'll be all right. And so uh, uh, eye shades to keep out extraneous light and earphones uh, with a carefully created uh, playlist of appropriate music. And what happened for Chris was, I believe every single time he went through there were two parts to the journeys. The first two hours were really, really difficult. Uh, letting go, surrendering, dying out of the ego. This is the ego dissolution process you mentioned. Um, uh, and, and beyond that, like even having to let go of any identity as a human, self-identity as a human, like the death of the species ego in that sense. And because for whatever reason, Chris was able to hang in and stay present with that, at about the two hour point, he broke through all that and what he sometimes describes as the um, into the sort of vast intelligences of the universe. And then he started downloading or receiving this information. And over the course of this 20 year period, that kept deepening. And it was real in, in many ways. For example, he took a six year hiatus at one point for a number of reasons, family, et cetera, et cetera, and came back after six years and the medicine picked up exactly where it had left him off, left him up from the uh, the one six, the, the, you know, the last one he did before the six year hiatus. It's like, okay, here we go. It, it had partly to do with, uh, he used the term cohere. He said there was so much energy coming in with this that it was extremely difficult to handle. And he had to learn to cohere at stronger and stronger levels as if you're getting electric bolts coming through you. And they go, okay, you've been able to stay present with that. Here comes next time, here comes stronger, right? He said one of those, it took him a year to physically get over it, literally a year to recuperate. That's how strong it was. And he recommends against not doing that, by the way. Uh, he said it made things really difficult for him in his life because of that. He, it was an incredible sacrifice. I don't know if he thought of it that way at the time, but once he got in there, they were, you know, they, were, they they had a contract with him. You know, you keep going with this. And the reason I put him at the front of the book is because um, the latter third or so of that 20-year journey, he started to get in more and more messages to say that planet is now at this moment starting into a death and rebirth process. The death process might be coming more and more apparent to people as things fall apart on multiple levels. The climate is going completely haywire. Uh, you know, demagogues are rising in different places. Fear and anxiety are rising, depression, etc., addiction. All these things um, are uh, generated by you might say this is like a ridiculously simplified you know, answer. One could talk about this for a long time uh, by the destabilization of, of the status quo and you know, comfort zones on the planet are becoming more and more difficult to, to um, you know, uh, connect to. They're, they're not there. It's like the ground is being ripped out from under our feet. And so we are into it. And uh, if Chris's visions and those of many others are correct, it's going to get a lot worse, sorry to say. But why that is so important to acknowledge is because if indeed we see these things happening of the unraveling of economic systems and increasing diseases or anything like climate that makes life very difficult, et cetera, et cetera. If we see this dissolution, almost like our e ego dissolution of the species, the point about that is that it had to happen. And this is what indigenous prophecies have been telling us for 500 years or sometimes much longer is that there, we have come to that time. We have come to the end of this trajectory. We can't go any further with 8 billion people on the planet to keep ripping the place apart. You know, we're borrowing and not paying back as it were. Uh, but it's all connected. It's all connected to our sort of collective karma that's been coming at us for perhaps 100,000 years. However, if you don't have any idea of that, of that there is a potential rebirth coming out of this, then you're just 
increasingly going to get anxious and depressed, etc., and and um, uh, dangerously vulnerable to demagogues and tyrants, you know, for example. So, what all these people are saying, and Chris Bay says it so well, is that we had to empty out of the of the um, the false, you might say, the. Uh, the, the false self that I mentioned earlier that the Buddhists talked about that are created by our stories, they're not functional for the most part on this planet anymore because they're disconnected from the fact that we actually are connected to everything. We are, in a sense, the same as the plants and the animals and everything. We are just, we're, we're nature, we're part of nature, uh, and we're not behaving like that. We're behaving as if we can do anything we want with it. We have up till now. Many of us are starting to change. Hallelujah, thank God, etc. you know. Uh, but that's why this message, I think, is so important. People need to see, need to hear a plausible story, not just a fairy tale, but a plausible story that says, this had to happen to make room for a new world, what Chris calls the birth of the future human, or what another contributor to the book, Dwayne Elgin, calls uh, a mature planetary civilization. It's also important to understand for anyone in a human body right now, this may not come to fruition in any way whatsoever in our lifetimes, even if you're only tw in your 20s or 30s. It may be a longer process than that. It may be really difficult for, I don't, God knows, I don't know, a century, maybe longer. Uh, but the more people can uh, tune in to the awakened state, the potential of the awakened state, and this is again where the psychedelics can come in uh, useful because they're the most powerful medicines we have, the most powerful modalities we have in the in the sense the short term of an emergency situation they're emergency medicines in that sense right i'm not in any way disparaging other practices meditation yoga all these things they they actually need to be combined as i mentioned earlier in the sense of integration uh with this work but without the medicines uh well let me put it this way the medicines are just going to be extremely helpful if they're done right respectfully and the whole process unfolds in the most optimal way uh and and then that might, you know, again, God, God is willing, lead us toward the sanity, um, the, the, the real world, as it were. You know, this indigenous people talk about this, you know, the real humans, the real world. Chris talks about, as I said, the birth of the future human, which is a human connected to our, our, our source in that sense. Well, Stephen, we're going to, uh, we're going to wrap up part one to be continued because I'd like to, uh, continue this conversation at a uh, uh, in the very uh, near future, if possible. Absolutely, Richard. Um, you've asked really interesting questions, and I feel like we've just tapped, you know, into a little bit of, of where we could go with this. How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. Uh, how do we get a copy? Ah, good question. Uh, well, it, I, if I'm not mistaken, the official publication date is November 22nd, so it's really just like a week and a half away or something like that. It's already can be ordered from most major chains, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, and the publisher themselves, uh, Inner Traditions, Park Street Press, etc., have their website, and so the book can be ordered, and it would probably be shipped almost immediately. I, I just got in mail today, uh, um, not, I don't know, like shipped, I guess, you know, I don't know, Prime, <laughs> I don't know who, F FedEx or one of these guys, you know, UPS. I just got 10 copies of the book. They, they, uh, you know, they gift the author or the whatever, I'm the editor, I guess, but they gifted me 10 copies and they just arrived today. So they're there, you know, and we actually had a soft launch of the book at the conference, at the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. Uh, where we sold, I think it was like 60 copies of the book sold at the conference. So it's, it's, it's here. Maybe it, you know, will take a week or two to get it if you order it online now, but it should be in bookstores very soon. Fantastic. And then the website, Stephen Gray with an A, stephengrayvision.com to keep track of everything that you're, that you're doing. Stephengrayvision.com. Thanks. Stephen so with a PH, by the way. Ah, yes. The yeah, link is in the, uh, the episode notes. And by the same name, also I have a YouTube channel where I've interviewed a lot of the same kind of people and a Facebook page by the same, or group by the same name. Okay? Fantastic. Until yeah. we speak again. Well, thanks a lot, Richard. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 
Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit